Uh, we're doing a series on the book of Romans. I called it Not Ashamed based upon Paul's statement that I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power uh, to, uh, to save. It's the thing that can lead us to eternal life. Um, we've been looking at Paul's explanation. We're in chapter 5, verse 12. We're going to talk about the gift of grace in this progressive series of messages. So if you don't mind, would you turn with me there to chapter 5 of Romans, begin our reading in verse 5, and if you're able and willing, would you stand with me as we read through this passage together? Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Paul is in mid-thought, that's why he begins with a therefore. The therefore is always kind of a connective conjunction saying in conclusion, if you will. He says, therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men because all sinned, for before the law was given, sin was in the world, but sin is not taken into account when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses. Even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Abraham, or excuse me, as did Adam, who was a pattern of the one to come. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Again, the gift of God is not like the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation. But the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if by the trespass of one man death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Consequently, just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, so also the result of the one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. For just as through the disobedience of the one man the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man the many will be made righteous. The law was added so that the trespass might increase. But where sin increased, grace increased. And all the more, so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. How many of you are confused by that? <laughs> How many of you are afraid to tell the truth? <laughs> well, if it's any help at all, that... Every commentator I read said, that is one of the most confusing passages in the whole Bible. So don't feel like you're stupid. We're going to try to simplify. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father God, I thank you for your word. And I thank you even when it's hard for us to really get our mind around exactly the why and the how Paul's saying this. We know it's your word. We know it's your truth. And we know that you have a message for us today. And so God, we pray you bless this time in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. It was almost 45 years ago. Modern historians consider it to have been one of the most, if not the most, pivotal moment in modern history. And not because of what happened, but ironically because of what did not happen. You see, for 12 days, the two most powerful men in the world... President John Kennedy and Russian Premier Nikita Khrushchev engaged in a deadly game of chicken, if you will. It was like they were having a staring contest, waiting to see which one would blink first. It all started when the United States decided to extend its nuclear strike capacity by placing nuclear missiles in Italy and also uh, in Turkey. Literally, it put Moscow in strike range of our Jupiter nuclear missiles. And so in response, the Russians, the Soviets, put nuclear missiles on the island of Cuba, just 90 miles off the shore of the United States. Khrushchev felt assured that he could get away with this because he considered John Kennedy to be kind of a, a weak 
leader that could easily be uh, indecisive and maybe even intimidated, but his calculation proved incorrect. Kennedy actually commanded the entire U.S. Atlantic fleet to surround and blockade the island of Cuba. A ring of warships were on every side of the island so that no ship could enter or leave without U.S. permission. And he said it would continue until the Soviets removed the missiles and also the bombers that were nuclear capable that also had been flown onto the island. Khrushchev countered by sending four electric diesel-powered submarines which were armed with nuclear warheads and nuclear missiles. And his idea was to sneak past the blockade and to break it and also to increase the threat value so that he would further intimidate and hopefully get the United States to back down. That's when things began to unravel. Diesel electric submarines have to surface to recharge their batteries. And one of the ships, the B-59, was running low on power, and so it was forced to surface, and as it did, it got spotted by an American spotter plane. Immediately, the signal was sent out, and over 11 American warships converged on that one submarine. And in order to get it to rise to the surface, they began to drop depth charges, five at a time. Why five at a time? Because that was the U.S.'s signal to submarines to surface before they're destroyed. The problem was the Soviet signal was three depth charges. They had a failure to communicate. And that failure became even more aggravated as the ship or the submarine dive, dove deep into the ocean to escape detection by, by our solar. They uh, lost radio contact with Moscow and suddenly they were operating in a void of information. As the depth charges continued to shake and to rattle the ship, the captain became convinced that they were actually attempting to sink the ship and that possibly, maybe even probably, war had already begun. The difficulty became even worse as the air conditioning system on the sub broke down. The temperatures began to rise to 130, 140 degrees inside the submarine. And the batteries had not been able to fully charge. They were running out of juice, and if they didn't resurface soon, they would all perish. And so he was faced with a decision what to do. The captain decided that what he would do was fire his nuclear warheads. He took his key and he and stuck it into the launch sequence and turned it to the on position. Generally, this required two to do the same. The political officer on board then took his key and stuck it inside the next slot and he also turned it to the on position and normally all that would be left is for the gunner to hit the button and fire the missiles. But on this one, that required three keys because on board with them was the command commodore of the entire submarine fleet. This man, Vasily Arkhipov, refused to insert his key. An argument ensued. Things got very heated and very intense but Arkhipov refused to cooperate. Some think it was because just a few years earlier he had been on a nuclear submarine that had caught fire and he saw the effect of radiation upon some of his men who were so horribly uh, destroyed by the fire and the radiation. Ironically, later all 120 crewmen would die of radiation poisoning and even he himself and eventually died from radiation poisoning. But that may have left an image in his mind, we don't know, but we just know this, he refused to insert his key and instead persuaded the captain to bring the ship, the submarine back to the surface and they sailed back to Russia. 
They were criticized and vilified, called cowards. They should have died in their ship and so forth and so on. But what that one man did by his action was kept World War III from taking place. Because if he had launched those missiles, we would have retaliated by launching our missiles on the Soviet Union. They, in turn, would have launched theirs. And the world that we live in today would have looked completely different. That rather than being vibrant economies like we are today, we would have been hollowed out shells. As someone once said, it would have blown most of Europe, Russia, and the United States back into the Stone Age. But one man made a decision that spared the world. We only found that out in 2002 when Soviet records were, suddenly, were finally open to the public and we were able to read their reports on the events. We never knew until then how close we had come to total destruction. History and the Bible are full of stories of persons like this, people who made decisions that forever changed the, the course of human events. But one that often gets overlooked and is really the most notable, at least in the negative sense, for having a negative effect upon human history is our forefather, Adam, Allah, Adam and Eve. You see, Paul begins this conversation here in chapter 5 by saying to us that sin entered the world through one man and death entered the world through sin, and in this way, death came to all men. He goes on further to say, death reigned through that one man. Many died by the trespass of that one man. In other words, there's no person in the history of the world who has had a more devastating effect upon humanity than Adam. His choice to disobey God which may in the moment of his actions seemed like a small thing, as sin almost always seems like a small thing in the moment, proved to be the most toxic and destructive thing. It created the greatest holocaust that the world has ever seen, the death of the entirety of humanity because of it. Death not only touches men's bodies <clears throat> through decay and aging and disease. It also damages our minds and even our very souls because when you talk about our relationships with other people, we, we suffer because they're always struggling because of the dynamic of sin that exists there. That sin makes relationship of limited safety. Sometimes relationships become clearly unsafe. I love what C.S. Lewis said in his classic work, The Four Loves. He said, love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. To keep it intact, you must not give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully with hobbies and little luxuries and avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will no longer be broken. It will, in fact, become unbreakable, impenetrable, and irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. It's that vulnerability to other people that is robbed from us because we live in a world full of sinful people, including ourselves. And so we prefer to live superficially. We prefer to keep all sorts of things about ourselves out of sight for fear that people knew this about me or that about me. Certainly they would no longer love me and accept me. As one, one psychologist put it so well, he said, the two driving passions of every human being is to be fully known and to be fully loved. And yet the problem is if people fully know me, I'm convinced they won't love me. And if they fully love me, they won't. It's because they don't fully know me. And so we never feel fully loved because we always hold back 
those things in ourselves that we think would be the basis of rejection by others. Someone once asked the question is, why is alcoholic anonymous so much more successful in helping alcoholics recover from their alcoholism than the church? And the answer is, the church is often not a safe place. The church is often not a safe place. Vulnerability often becomes a source of rumoring. I'll never forget the woman who came to me from another church one time, asked, she was coming for marital counseling. I said, well, why are you here? Why don't you just go to your pastor? She says, oh, no, no, no. If I tell my pastor, he'll tell his wife. She'll tell other people in the church. Within a week, everybody will know. I said, really? So I called a friend of mine who was familiar, and he said, oh, yes, absolutely true. Absolutely true. Now, I share that with you because I'm absolutely convinced we're different. (laughs) I can hope. (laughs) I can pray. But it's the reality, is it not? It's not just the church. It's where you work. It's where you go to school. It can be even within your own family network even in your supposed set of friendships, there is this thing of, I'm going to be careful about what I say because if I say the wrong thing, the love stops, the relationship's terminated. And so we lie. We start lying at about 18 18 months of age, they tell us. At 18 months of age, we start lying, and we do it for one simple reason, the psychologist says, to get out of trouble. And we end up lying the entirety of our life because every time we think we're going to get in trouble, we don't say, here's the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So that when somebody says, is that really the truth? You answer confidently, well, as far as you know. (laughs) But as bad as all of that is, Sin didn't just stop there. It didn't just stop with ruining our lives. It also set out to destroy our eternity. Because what he told us here in verses 16 and 18 in our reading, he says, judgment followed sin. And then he goes on, he says, and brought damnation, got condemnation for all men. That in other words, because of that sin, not only does our life become hellish, but we find that after life we actually get actual hell and the condemnation that comes with it. And hell is not a, 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 a metaphorical or theoretical place. Jesus never referred to it as a, an, a, an imaginary thing. He described it as a literal place. In fact, he said much about it. For example, in Matthew 8, he said it's described as being outer darkness. It's an interesting phrase, outer darkness. It seems seems to grab this idea that you're out there all by yourself. And there is nobody else. So that when people say, when I die and I go to hell, I'm going to tell my friends. And you say, you fool. There'll be no friends to talk to. If there's anybody to rub up against, it'll be demons. (laughs) But it it won't be like you're hanging out with your buddies. Jesus, when in Luke 16, said it's a place of torment, or more literally, a place of torture. In Matthew 13, he said it's a fiery furnace. It's where there's weeping, there's wailing, and there's gnashing of teeth. In Matthew 18, he said it's everlasting. You know, it's not like you you, you burn up and and everything's gone. All the combustibles have been consumed and there's nothing left. Some like to teach the idea, well, you die and then you're annihilated if you're not saved. But the problem is, soul is spirit. Soul is spirit. Spirit is indestructible. Spirit is eternal. Matter, my body, my material being, yeah, that's going to rot away and be gone. But my soul is that spiritual essence of who I am, and that is everlasting. So the question isn't whether my soul will live for eternity. The question is, where will my soul live for eternity? Or more appropriately, will it live for eternity or will it die for eternity. Those are the choices. And please don't misunderstand me. They aren't my choices. <laughs> Those are Jesus' description of the choices. 
argue with him. That's why the book of Revelation describes hell as being this bondless, boundless, endless place of indescribable torment, filled with God and yet absolutely without God. Now, don't ask me, ask me how to explain that because God who is ever-present is everywhere. But it's as if in that moment that people will stand before the God of the universe and they will see Him in all of His majesty and His beauty and His glory and they will see all of the love and all the mercy and all the goodness that is Him and they will see all of the generosity that He has towards those who believed. And in that moment, they will have a snapshot memory that they will never be able to touch as they are cast into outer darkness and they will live with the torment of eternity of knowing what they could have had if they would have believed. And to those people who say, well, I just can't believe in a God who would send people to hell, let me correct your thinking. God sends nobody to hell. We make that choice ourselves. The moment we say, I don't need him, the moment we say we don't need the only answer that there is, we're left with our own devices. And the worst part of hell is you'll spend it eternally alone with yourself. And your last and your longing memory will be what could have been but will never be. Because, see, that's the idea of eternity. It's timelessness. That, you know, as I get older, I kind of sometimes complain about time because time takes its toll uh, on the body and on the mind. You know, aging is not the, the funnest prospect that you can go through in life. But I tell you, as somebody said, the alternative is not very attractive. <laughs> but you see, the beautiful thing about time is, time is always a second chance. Time is what get, makes life into one constant mulligan. You, if you don't get it right today, you can wake up tomorrow and do it again. That's why the psalmist said, his mercies are renewed every day. Hallelujah. Because I need mercy every day. I go to the bed, bed every night praying, God, I hope I, I respond better. I hope I follow more closely tomorrow than I did today. And there's always that hope. But once your life on earth is over, once you leave the dimension of time and you enter into the dimension of eternity, what is, is forever. It's sealed. There is no clock to move anything forward, no calendar to measure the progression. Just eternity is just that. It is what is. As the as book of Revelation says, time is no more. Time is just another dimension of God's creative force. All of this is a consequence, again, of sin. In fact, the church fathers called it original sin. Some called it hereditary sin or father's sin. Basically, the idea that somehow, and nobody knows exactly how, but Adam's sin was passed on to his descendants, which is you and me. Whether it became part of our DNA or it has some other spiritual dynamic, nobody actually knows. But what we know that we recognize it when we see it. David recognized it when he said in Psalm 51, I was sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Paul said, we'll see later on in Romans 7, that sin, it lives inside of me. It's something that's it's part of my life. Now, what that means is that I was condemned as a sinner before I ever had the opportunity to actually sin. And I know some of saying, well, that's not fair. I'm not sure you want to go down that road. But here's the dynamic. Even if I don't believe that I was born a sinner, it will not take very much time for you to begin to prove that you are. Death, disease, discord, depression, disaster, soon enough all of these things will come calling into your life. And if you add enough time, soon enough you will prove that you are a sinner by your thoughts, by your words, and by your actions. We are more likely to sin than we are not to sin. 
We are more likely not to, 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 we're more likely to sin than not. It's just we find ourselves in the midst of it and then go, oh, I probably shouldn't have said that. Oh, I shouldn't be thinking those thoughts. Oh, I wish I hadn't acted that way. And one of the things that is, makes you wiser as you get older is your perspective on yourself becomes so much more objective and you suddenly realize that you are an object of God's mercy and grace if, in fact, you're still sucking air and pumping blood. It just becomes more evident to you all the time. That's why you don't want fair. Now, what we want is we want fairness in relationship to other people. We want mercy and grace in relationship to ourselves. Lord, how can you let them get away with that? And if we listen carefully enough, we'd hear the Spirit's voice echoing back off the wall of our own hearts because I let you get away with it. And I let you get away with it over and over and over again. I do not. Oh, really? Do we have to do this again? <laughs> I mean, it, it's the humbling reality that, God, I don't want fairness. I want mercy. I want forgiveness. But there's where the challenge comes. Because some people, when they talk about fairness, are doing what the Jews were doing. They were using the law as a way of judging other people. And that's why Paul writes here in verse 13, he says, but before the law was given, sin was in the world. But sin is not taken into account when there is no law. In other words, there's nobody with a notepad keeping record as such when there is no law. But that doesn't mean you weren't sinning. You see, I mean, it was one of the, one of the blessings and challenges of riding in a car with my wife is she's keeping record. You know, I mean, she is the one who constantly reminds me, uh, this is a 35-mile-an-hour zone. And, I, and, you know, quite honestly, because I'm usually, my head's someplace else. I'm not paying attention. And so I get that reminder. She's keeping an account, and she's keeping record of how often I do that. She's so legalistic <laughs> for a reason. I mean, you know, after I first moved here, being used to driving in California, I end up within a few months getting my insurance canceled because I had so many speeding tickets. It just took me a while to get used to it. But I've changed. <laughs> but here's what Paul goes on to say in verse 20. He says, God's law was given so that all people could see how sinful they were. So <laughs> mankind found himself in this uh, proverbial, between this proverbial rock and a hard place. You see, on one hand, you have this immovable object called God's holiness as represented by His law. On the other hand, you have this irresistible force called my sinfulness. And so I can't stop running against God's law and God's law doesn't budge. And that's where mankind was. You see, Paul was essentially saying to the Jews, saying, well, we keep the law. He says, oh, do you keep the law? All the law actually does is put a, a, a flashing neon light above your sins so nobody can miss it anymore. You know, it's a great big eat at Joe's sign blinking and pointing at you so that you cannot escape. I remember how this came home to me one time. I, when my son Brian was, uh, was in grade school and he was, he was going to Northwest Christian when it was over on Central. And, and so I'd drive him to school every day and my wife before I came here to church. And, and uh, one morning, I, uh, you know, I was running a little bit late and I pulled up a four-way four light, stoplight, and um, I'm, I'm there all by myself. I look left, I look right, I look across both ways, behind me. I'm the only guy in the road. And I'm just sitting there waiting for the light to change. And so I did what any reasonable guy would do. It was safe, floored it, took off right through the red light. No problem, but I don't get, I don't get more than a half a mile and suddenly it's Christmas behind me. <laughs> the lights are flashing. <laughs> I look and I go, oh, stink. So I pull over. Patrolman, uh, this state patrolman gets out and he walks up to my window and he says, um, 
are you aware that you just went through a red light? And I said, yes, sir. He said, why did you do that? I said, because I am a stupid idiot. <laughs> he, he said, what'd you say? Because I think he thought I called him a stupid idiot. And I said, I am a stupid idiot. <laughs> he didn't argue. He had mercy and gave me a warning. Maybe because he didn't know what to do with the truth. He'd been so long since he heard it. <laughs> but the simple fact was that I was guilty. I mean, there was, no, there was no escaping it. There was no denying it. It was evident to me and everybody else. It just put the floodlight of guilt. And I, I will go on record. I have never done that again yet. <laughs> I don't know what tomorrow's going to bring, but I've never done that, at least intentionally. But you see, that's the problem that all the law did was really put flashing blue and red lights behind you and saying, guilty, guilty. Was I guilty when I ran the light? Absolutely. But if nobody saw it, I could get away with it. But once I got pulled over, it was no more denying. That's what the law was. It was a white state patrol car with flashing blue lights right on your tail saying, guilty. So Paul says, don't start turning to Moses and saying, well, we got the law and that makes us righteous. He, no, you are a sinner all the way up until the moment that God fixed it in the only way it could be fixed. Because see, what we were facing is a God-sized problem that could only be met with a God-sized solution. And so he says that sin had entered into the world because of one man's actions and God set out to reverse mankind's sin by one man's action. Listen to how, how he says it. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? How much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ, and be made righteous? Where sin increased, grace increased. Paul's use of verbs in this section is really uh, strong because Every one of those words, when he says how much more, how much more, he says overflow, he says abundant, he says increased, increased, they all have the same root, basically something that is over super, superlatively abounding, overwhelming in an immeasurable degree. So he says no matter how deep and dark man's sin took him, the grace of Jesus Christ superabounded above and beyond it. Now this is an important thing to understand. The emphasis is, is not accidental. He's not just using hyperbole to kind of exaggerate what he's saying. He's trying to get us to grasp the significance of what Jesus' death on the cross actually accomplished for us. Because you know what you and I do. We have a hard time believing that we're 100% forgiven. A lot of us are in the 50 to 60% club. Well, I believe that God has forgiven me, but, and then we throw that but in there, and, and we're essentially saying, but, uh, you know, that, but there's something I've got to do too. I, I, I can't just expect that God's just going to completely forgive me. I mean, certainly he's got to have something that I've got to do to rectify the situation and change it and make it right. And the problem is, is that you can't. There's no way that you can rectify. Now, you can react in obedience to His will and maybe do something for someone, but the reality is the sin itself, the transgression itself, cannot be undone. When I ran that red light willfully and intentionally, I could be forgiven I could be given a warning. I could be let off and freed from a fine or something even worse. But I could never go back and say it didn't happen. Because it did happen. That when you lied, maybe the person found out and forgave you. Or maybe you hid it and they never found it out. But the fact is you still lied. 
You still cheated. You still stole. You still hated. You still judged. And whether or not you get found out or not, it's still written in the annals of time and eternity. And you can't undo that. You can't get the stain out. You can only confess it. And this becomes critically important because, quite honestly, when we play the fairness card and all that stuff, what it is is a way of taking the gaze off of ourselves and of putting it onto somebody else. One of the things that was just very humbling and eye-opening for me was when my wife and I began to seriously pray for our extended family. We're you know, about talking about brothers and sisters and cousins and uh, you know, in-laws and stuff. That, and we, had a whole, we have a whole list of them. We have a long list of them who aren't walking with Jesus or have fallen away from the Lord for various reasons. And we started praying that God would bring them to a saving relationship and they would begin to walk with Jesus. As soon as we began praying that prayer, God began to show me things about my attitudes towards those people. He began to show me about a relative who's a pretty serious alcoholic and how when we'd visit, I mean, just the behavior was just, I just, I hated it. But more than hating what he did, I found myself really kind of hating him. And when you start praying for that person that they would meet Jesus, you know what happens? <laughs> you get convicted for being a hater. You realize Jesus wants me to love this guy. He really wants me to pray earnestly for his soul. And I began to find myself going through this whole journey saying, how many times I've been guilty of demanding or expecting regenerate behavior out of somebody who's never been regenerated. I, I want good, moral, upright behavior coming out of somebody who has never come to the fact of their own sinfulness and their own need for Jesus. And I think that G.K. Chesterton, the great G.K. Chesterton, put it so well when he said one time, he said, even the man who is knocking on the door of the brothel. You know what a brothel is, don't you? It's a house of prostitution. Even the man who is knocking on the door of the brothel is looking for God. He's just looking in the wrong place. The fact of the matter is that every man and woman in the world is looking for God. They may try to find what God can only give in, in lying and in stealing and addiction in all sorts of horrible behaviors, but they're still looking for the thing that only God can give to them. How many marriages are in trouble because a husband or a wife is demanding and, and requiring and becoming frustrated because they want their spouse to do for them what only God can do for them. And so they stand in judgment and, and criticism and the pointing of the finger when Jesus begins to speak into your heart and as he began to speak into my heart, I found my whole prayer for all of these people changing even to the point of tears, pleading with God for their souls that they might know Jesus and praying, God, let me, next time I'm ever around them, to behave with your love for them, to love them with all of my heart. It's amazing how it starts changing those relationships. Because God's grace is there, not legalisms, not judgment, not finger pointing. It's this realization that the worse it gets, the more God does. When I hear the, the political discourse of our day and I hear many Christians saying, it's so terrible in America today. Well, don't misunderstand me. I'm it is bad. I mean, there's a lot of sad things that are happening. But we're still a long ways from Sodom and Gomorrah. We're still a long way from first century Corinth or first century Rome. If you study those cultures, man, <laughs> they're bad. <laughs> I mean, it's beyond descriptive of bad. 
I'm not saying we won't end up there the, the way we're going. <laughs> we seem to be trying to put it into, into fifth gear and get there faster, but nonetheless, we do have a technological advantage. We can become much worse quicker. But the simple fact is that we ne- never hear Paul crying for fire from heaven. We never hear Jesus say, Lord, destroy them. We hear him saying, forgive them. We hear, we see Paul wading into the midst of Corinth and sharing Christ with them and loving these people in the midst of their sin because he knew the power of sin and he knew even better the power of grace. He knew the power of grace. That's why I think evangelical Christianity has gotten in trouble. We think that our, our effectiveness is by telling everybody what we're against. You know, and that's not hard to do, <laughs> really. I mean, if you're trying to find something to criticize, watch one of the debates. I don't know. You know, you can, I, I, have to, I can't watch them because my wife doesn't like where I go. <laughs> And I don't like where I go. I'm judgmental, I'm critical, I'm fault-finding, as if I could do better. But be that as it may, the simple fact of the matter is that if that's going to be what we're known for, then we are going to become increasingly irrelevant because what are all these guys, why would most of these guys run for political office? Because they think if they knock on that door and and the door opens to them, they'll find God or what God can do for them if they can just get through this, get to that point. That's why people lie, cheat, and steal in the business world. That's why people lie, cheat, and steal in relationships. That's why people do everything they do because we suddenly think if we can just knock on that door, it'll open to us and then we'll have happiness not realizing how fleeting whatever happiness you may derive, it'll be gone in a moment. God says, I have something different for you. I have grace, and I have it in such abundance that it goes deeper and further and will have more impact than anything that you can ever do wrong. You can be forgiven. You can be healed. You can be set free. It's the explanation to the question, what's right and wrong in the world? And again, we think our mission sometimes is to always be pointing out to the world what's wrong with the world. And that's, that's an easy target. It's, you just open your eyes, you can find all sorts of things that are wrong with the world. What's wrong with the world? I love what Tim Keller said. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared imagine. <laughs> We're more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared imagine. And and, and we don't want to dare very often. We want to pretend that if we can see somebody who appears to be worse than us, that that therefore makes us better than them. That's a lie. I I don't mean to rain on your parade, but be honest and you're going to find out that there's a sinfulness in you that goes so deep. There is a, a flaw in you that's so pervasive that it beggars your imagination. That's why when I pray, Lord, show me my heart, but not all at once. I don't want to see it. I can only process so much. I have somebody on my prayer list I'm praying for that, man, has made some bad choices and really has suffered significant for it. And I pray, God, lead them to that place of healing and recovery. Lead them to the place of confession and repentance but do it gently because I know what it's like to have to face things in yourself and go through the crushing heartbreak of regret and remorse. It can kill you because the truth of the matter is we're more sinful and flawed than we, we dare imagine. That's the bad news. That's the reality of all of us in this world. But the other side, the good news, what is right is we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dare dream. 
So as one writer put it so well, he said, the desire of every man is to be fully loved and to be fully known. And yet here's the quandary as well. If people fully know me, they won't love me. And if they fully love me, it's because they don't fully know me. And so I better keep secrets. And God says, I fully know you. I know everything. I know things in you that you haven't even recognized in you, but I still love you the same. Remember, when the sheep got lost, the good shepherd went looking for the wandering sheep, not the other way around. And as Dave Draper in, in his, his great book on the 23rd Psalm puts it so well, he says, here's the great irony, the great irony that all through history, religious history, they always, shepherd would bring the lamb and the lamb would be sacrificed for the sins of the shepherd. But in Jesus, the shepherd sacrificed himself for the sins of the lamb. Completely incomprehensible. But it was the only way the sheep's sin could be covered. In short, Paul made these simple points. He said, everything in the world went wrong the moment Adam sinned. I mean, literally, the world and, and, and humanity, the wheels started coming off. And nothing got better when Moses came along. All that Moses did is put a spotlight on what had been less than obvious to some people. In fact, what it did is it made the dilemma worse because the more evident our sin became, the harder we work to pretend it wasn't there. But thirdly, Paul's saying there's only one way that it can get fixed. In verse 17, it says, when we receive the gift of grace and the gift of righteousness that came through one man, Jesus Christ, so that grace might reign and bring eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. One man broke it and one man fixed it. And the only way that we can get fixed is to go to the one man who has the power to fix it. Father, I pray that these things would make sense. I confess that even for me, this was a challenging and complex passage, not because the concepts are so strange, but Paul says them in a really convoluted way. But Lord, you have the ability to take the most profound truths and to simplify them for our simple minds so that we can understand them. I pray, Father, that you would just bring your transforming power into our lives, that you would change our hearts, change our way of thinking, change our way of looking at the world around us and looking at other people in this world that we might be defined by our love because we love the way that you love, that we would not be the judgmental, the critical, the, the people who walk with pointed fingers, that we would not think that it's our job to expose other people, but rather to find the courage to allow ourselves to be exposed. That we'd stop trying to prove to you or anyone else, Lord, that we are lovable and valuable and worthwhile. That maybe for many of us, for the first time in our life, we'd be able just to accept the fact that we are lovable and valuable to you, whether or not anybody else sees that. And that would be enough. That, Lord, is a as a community of believers, we, we wouldn't be under the burden of pretending. Instead, Lord, that we could just walk humbly with our God. That people aren't going to come to Jesus because we don't smoke or chew or run with girls who do. They're going to come to Jesus because they believe that you love them just the way they are. 
and you love them too much to leave them that way. Do this work in us, Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're new to us, we'll just let you know that we regularly continue with a short time after the message uh, in a time of worship. Really, it's more of a time of reflection, a time for us to really step back and go, okay, God, you undoubtedly said something to me today, and I want to hear it. I want to make it my own. I don't want to be just reflecting on what that guy said. I want to, I want to make it my own. I want you to write your truth on my heart. That's how change starts. That's how healing starts. That's how victory starts. We have the elements of communion up here. We make them available every week because in reality what we're doing is we're confessing that when it came to God, he was an unmovable rock. And when it came to my sin, it was an irresistible force that I couldn't resist. But Jesus burst the rock and he took over my sin and he changed me so that when I partake of these elements, I partake of his eternal life. If you don't know Jesus Christ, I invite you to come up. Myself and some others who will be up here in front be glad to pray with you. Maybe you've slipped away and gotten all tangled up by stuff. We'll pray with you that God would help you to untangle that mess. Maybe your body needs healing. Maybe your heart needs healing. Your finances need healing. We just serve a God who heals. He heals souls. He heals bodies. He, he, seal, he heals whole nations. Because he said, if you call to me, I will answer. So I encourage you to respond as God prompts you before we make our exit today.